Good morning. Uh, my name is Ryan. It's my privilege to open God's Word with you again this morning. If you are just joining us, we've been working our way through First Peter, and you're here for the last one, so you didn't miss much. But let me, uh, let me catch, up, catch you up a little bit on where we are. Uh, this is a letter by the Apostle Peter. He's writing to various churches. They are churches that are experiencing certain levels of suffering. He's trying to encourage them in different ways. And so along the way, we've been asking this question from week to week, what does it look like for disciples of Jesus to make a difference in the world, especially when it feels like the world is against you? And uh, so we've come up with different answers to that question. We've said, well, it means that uh, as Christians, we ought to be people who are filled with hope. Um, sometimes when it, there's really no earthly reason for hope, we have reason for hope, so we should be hopeful people. Uh, we should be humble people, joyful people, um, people who endure in the midst of suffering. And we've just talked about various descriptors each week. And, and this week, I, I realized I've sort of assumed something, maybe I shouldn't assume, but uh, I've assumed something that Peter makes clear that we should probably spell out before we wrap this whole thing up. Uh, and that is, for Peter, uh, the Christian life is a group project, which is really disappointing to some of you because you know the difference between a group project and an individual project. Uh, students, you know the difference. Some of you love group projects because you're very social, uh, and others like, uh, don't like group, social, uh, group projects because, you know, they like want to get the work done. And so some of us prefer individual projects to group projects, uh, and, uh, and, and yet uh, Peter makes very clear in this passage, and really he's just echoing the entire Bible, that uh, to, to walk with God is a group project. Uh, to be a hopeful person is a group project, uh, as is being a humble person, joyful person. Go right through the list. Peter never gets away from this idea that to be a disciple who makes a difference means we are doing all of these things together. Together. And you even see it in our passage. Now, you don't really see it in our passage because in our English translations, we do miss something along the way. What we miss is that all of the, the, the pronouns that are listed for us here are in the plural. So if you're using the ESV as in the English Southern version, it says, all y'all throughout. Uh, or maybe the English South Philly version, all yous, uh, all, that's, that's all throughout. But the rest of us with the boring old English Standard version, all we get is you. But really what he says is, humble yourselves, all y'all, therefore, because uh, cast all your cares together on him, uh, your adversary, that's our adversary, and on it goes. So it's there in the text. You may not see it, but I need to bring it to the surface because we need to talk this morning specifically about what it means to do all these things together, what it means for us to strive as a church for unity, for unity. So we're going to dive right into that and uh, in these last few verses of First, uh, first Peter. But let me pray for us first as we open God's Word together. Father, we do humble ourselves before your mighty hand, including in this very specific way. We don't know everything. We simply don't know everything. In fact, some of us know that all too well right now because we are here searching for answers, and we cannot find those answers anywhere. Others of us need to hear that as something of a rebuke because, honestly, sometimes we feel like we know everything. Lord, all of us come here with a deficit of wisdom. 
And so, Lord, we look to you now as we humble ourselves that you might exalt us even in this moment with the mind of Christ, with the very words of the living God. We pray you would do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Is it too soon to talk about COVID? Okay, no, I guess not. So let's talk about COVID for a second. I don't, I don't mean to dismiss the serious medical complications some of you are still having because of it or uh, the grief it's called, caused many people, including people in this room and, and watching online and watching from the fellowship halls. So I'm not looking to dismiss that, but I am going to sort of cut to the chase on one issue. Uh, I want you to remember, if you can, it was only two years ago that March Madness was canceled. And we're all wondering why, what could possibly cause these things to get canceled? What could possibly be so serious that we would need to be locked down, that all of a sudden we were locked down? And then I remember my family sanitizing groceries with wet wipes in my garage. Remember those days? Um, And then, you know, then we're trying to figure out what lockdown life looks like. And so we've got, you know, Jim from the office broadcasting from his his, uh, home words of good, good, good news, you know, some, some good news, and we all enjoyed that. And then we had um, world-class musicians streaming concerts free from their house. Do you remember this? Remember all this? is two years ago. And uh, the feeling that we all had was, you know, no matter what happens, no matter how bad this gets, we are going to get through this together. As grim as it was, we all were working with this understanding that when this was all over, we were going to be more united than ever. (laughs) And not so much. Not so much. Now, granted, a lot of other things have happened over the last couple years uh, in your personal life, in our country's life, in the world's uh, life. And yet, let's just kind of sit, sit on that question for a second because it's something I've returned to over the last few months. Uh, if a worldwide pandemic uh, is not powerful enough to bring us together, is anything powerful enough to bring people together? Now, it's interesting to me that Peter is writing to people Uh, Christians who are scattered in these different churches, and they're suffering. They're not suffering a pandemic that we know of, but it's it's more the the suffering of persecution. They are being singled out for being Christians, and so they're they're suffering in their jobs and in their social life, and eventually this is going to get to the point where they're really suffering physically uh, under the hand of the government uh, at the time. And so these are people who know suffering, and Peter knows they know suffering, and yet Peter doesn't assume that shared suffering alone is going to bring them together, because he knows better. He knows that our hearts sort of default to being divisive and to disagreeing to the point of being polarized. And so he emphasizes throughout this letter, including at the very end, that the way in which we come together, for those of us who are Christians, the way we're brought together is not merely through shared experience, but from the fact that we have a shared Savior, a King, a Lord, a Christ, a Messiah who has saved us. And it's actually as we stand together in that true grace, as Peter says, we actually find that God brings us together across differences. Christian unity is not Christian uniformity, thank God. 
Uh, we're going to disagree about things. Of course we're going to disagree about things. Some of you disagree for a living. It's like, I'm, like you know, We're not going to get past some of our disagreements, and yet Peter emphasizes here to this church that they cannot afford in this cultural moment to be divided. They simply can't afford to do it. I don't know about you, but I would, I would really like to hear what Peter has to say about that. Because I, I think Peter's words hold true for us as well, that, that in our own cultural moment, we simply can't afford to be divided over secondary things. Uh, there, is, there is too much to do together. There is too much that we're facing together. There is too much work to do together. We, we have too much in common to be divided by the things that divide us. Because the fact of the matter is, as we do a, a two-year inventory, the church isn't necessarily in better shape than the culture on this. We, as Christians, tend to be just as divided for the same reasons. And so what would it look like for us to begin to get a sense of the urgency of Christian unity, the urgency, the urgency the necessity. You may not think that Christian unity is a big deal. Peter thinks it's a big deal. Jesus thinks it's a big deal. Jesus spends time praying in John 17 for many things, but one of the things he prays for several times is that his people would be one. Unity, it's a big deal. And Peter explains why it's a big deal. First of all, because we are called together to fight together. We are all in a fight And it simply doesn't make sense for us to spend our time and energy fighting each other when we have a fight on our hands together. And he identifies for us two common enemies. The first one, our arrogance, our pride. He begins this section, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. To humble yourself from the Bible's perspective is simply to square with the reality that you are not self-sufficient, God is self-sufficient. That you are not self-existent, God is self-existent. That you are not all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful. You are not at the center of the universe, God is. It is simply squaring with reality that God is God and you are not. Now, Peter develops this idea, he delivers these body blows to our arrogance and our pride, not simply to put us in our place, but to put us in a place in which it's safe to ask for help. Because, you know, if, if, if your mantra is, I can handle it, I got it, I got it, I don't need any help, then you're never going to ask for help, naturally. But if you get to a place of humility, healthy humility, we begin to do what Peter invites us to do in verse 7. Notice right after this call to uh, humility, Peter says this, casting all your anxieties on him that is on God because he cares for you. Can we just camp out on that phrase for a moment and and, and just take stock of, of what Peter's calling us to do? He's saying that you and I have permission to cast all our anxieties on God, all, all. So anxieties about school and exams and papers and tests and grades and college and anxieties about career and vocation and promotion, anxieties about marriage and dating and kids 
anxieties about, well, you honestly don't know what you're anxious about, but you are, and you're staring at the ceiling at two in the morning. So those anxieties too, all your anxieties on him, not in a neat spreadsheet, categorized and sortable by topic, on him. As a friend of mine likes to say, take the junk drawer of your life and hand it over to Jesus. All your anxieties on him. Why? But he cares for you. Do you believe that? That he cares for you. And because he cares for you, you have permission to cast all of your anxieties on him. Arrogance is the enemy of your anxiety because arrogance tells you that you can handle it and that no one wants to hear it and that you should be able to handle it. Arrogance holds our anxiety hostage. Humility frees us to say, I will cast all of my anxieties on him because he cares for me, because I don't have it together, and because I can't handle it. That's common enemy number one. Common enemy number two, our arrogance. Common enemy number two, our accuser. He goes on in verse eight to warn us to be sober-minded and to be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Uh, Lesson number one, the devil is real. Uh, He's not, you know, just a character from an SNL sketch in red tights and a pitchfork who cracks jokes. Uh, the, the, uh, from the very first pages of Scripture, we realize that we have a fight on our hands, and behind that fight is a real supernatural being who has real intent to do you harm. And the word that's used here is the word adversary. That's a word that's actually taken from the legal world, and so it imagines for us someone in a courtroom who is bringing charges against you, someone who's pointing at you and saying, he did it, she did it, she knows, he knows what they did. And the example we have in the Bible of the devil, Satan, using this tactic, we see it in several places, but one of the most vivid places is in the oldest book of the Bible, the book of Job. In Job chapter 1, we find Satan in all places being ushered, welcomed, uh, invited, charged, called, uh, subpoenaed to come into the courtroom of the living God, and there he begins to make accusations against a man named Job, and the accusation goes something like this. This is a loose translation of the Hebrew. Uh, Job loves you because of the good stuff you give him, not because you're good. So you take away the good stuff, he's not gonna love you anymore. That's the accusation. Job's a phony. Job's a a poser. Job says one thing but means another. Okay, that's the accusation. Then you can go read the book of Job to see uh, how that all works out. But that's the basic tactic that Peter has in mind here. It shows up again at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 12, where we're told that Satan is the accuser of the brethren who accuses believers day and night before the Lord. So uh, the whole episode with Job wasn't a solo shot. I'm not sure that it all plays out the same way, but the, the tactic is the same. It is to accuse you. And now Peter adds, and those accusations, among other things that Satan does, is like the roar of a lion. Now, I've never heard a lion roar in the wild. Maybe you have, you've been on a safari, or maybe you grew up somewhere where lions were prowling around. I, 
I grew up in the suburbs, so I didn't, I didn't hear any of those things. Maybe I heard one at a zoo one time. I can't really remember. What I can remember is a couple months ago, it was actually right after we got here. It was right when it snowed, which was like two days after we got here, and we were outside. I was outside walking our dog in the, in the front yard, and I heard this horrific scream. I mean, it was terrible. I was like, what neighborhood do I live in? Where, where am I? And I looked up, and there were two cute little red foxes playing across the street in the snow, and they're chasing each other around, and, uh, and they're screaming at each other in the most horrifying fashion. It was terrifying, and it was adorable. It was actually, the whole thing was very confusing, but this is not confusing. If you hear a lion roar, it rattles you to your bones. And part of the way that that, uh, Satan terrifies us and rattles us is by accusing us. And you know how this works. You know that much like his accusations of Job, Satan will come to us, and it doesn't sound like a roar, but it affects us like a roar, and he begins to accuse us of being a phony, of being a faker, of saying, you know, if people really knew who you were, if people really knew what you did, they wouldn't want anything to do with you. You can't tell anybody about that sin or that failure, you might be able to talk to God about it in sort of, you know, a very casual, nonspecific way, but you can't talk to anybody else about it. And don't you know that your sin disqualifies you from the love of God? Do you think God really wants to hear from you again? Because weren't you confessing this same sin like eight hours ago? And he knows, Satan knows, because he's good at this, he's done it for a long time, how to push repeat on the soundtrack of shame in your head. He's got you figured out. He knows what buttons to push. And what Peter says is, we need to be sober-minded, yes. We need to be watchful, yes. Not that we're terrified, but we need to be watchful, why? because we need to be able to resist him firm in your faith. Firm in your faith. Resist him firm in your faith. That is to say, to meet those accusations with the declaration of the gospel, to, to, to stand firm in our faith that when Jesus went to the cross, he went to the cross to pay for all of our sins, past, present, future, all. They are paid for so that you can say on one hand, yes, I agree with you. I'm a sinner, but I have to say you are completely wrong that that disqualifies me from the love of God because the very evidence of the love of God is that Jesus took my sins to the cross and gave me his righteousness so that it is absolutely true that there is nothing I can do as a son or daughter of the king to make God love me any more, and there's nothing I can do to make him love me any less. Resist him with the truth of the gospel. Now, that is the truth that all of us cling to in those moments of our shame and our guilt and our despair, but it just makes no sense to me whatsoever that we would try to do that together, or rather apart as opposed to together. Why not, as Peter says here, resist him together, firm in your faith together, to encourage each other to get over the awkwardness of praying for each other over the phone. Just do it. Using your commute to encourage one another on the phone, not text. Okay, I'm not saying that. Maybe send verbal text. That's fine. But I have to agree with what uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, one Christian writer, said, the further I go in life, the more I'm convinced that every Christian is a struggling Christian, and we're all dependent on brothers and sisters who know their vulnerabilities. Um, 
I agree with what she says there, and then she says, we're simply not designed for solo flight. It's true. We've got a real fight on our hands. We do. That's what Peter says. We don't have time or energy. It makes no sense for us to fight against one another when we have a common enemy in our arrogance and our adversary. But because we've got a real fight on our hands, we need to consider this as well. We don't just fight together. We also heal together. We fight together, and we need each other so we can heal together. Peter goes on in that same verse, verse 9, when he says, part of what brings healing to us in the midst of our woundedness is knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood, brothers and sisters, that is to say, around the world, brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, this is, first of all, a good reminder that um, as we sit here in relative comfort, if I can put it that way, uh, there are brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering in all kinds of different ways. Many of us are going to go home after this or go out and have a nice meal, and we're going to go home to a a warm house on a chilly day, and we've got, you know, sweaters and, and, and uh, jackets to put on, and there are, there are brothers and sisters in Christ. They're, they're not just brothers and sisters in Christ, but lots of human beings around the world who are suffering significantly right now. That's, that's good for us to remember, just to live with a heart of gratitude and not complacency. But that's actually not Peter's main point, as good as that point is, uh, that I just made for him. Um, the point he's making here is that we have the same kinds of suffering that we share wounds, that you may think that you're like a pioneer in your particular um, way of suffering. Like, like, speaking of Satan's tactics, this is another one where he says to you, you're the only person in the history of Christendom who has ever suffered in this particular way. You're the only person ever in the history of McLean Presbyterian Church, it's long in storied history, who has ever fallen into this particular sin. You're the only one. And as long as he can convince you that you're the only one, you'll just kind of keep it to yourself because you know what? You think you're the only one. Peter is saying, no, there are people in this room, if you were to go to them right now, please don't do it, but if you were to go to them right now and said to them, this is what I'm struggling with, they would say, me too. Or at least they would say, yeah, I, 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 I dealt with that too. Let's talk. That's Peter's point, that we heal together because we have shared wounds. There's no originality in woundedness. We're all walking wounded. And then secondly, we also have a shared hope. So he goes on to say in verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore you. Now, I don't know about you, but that phrase, a little while, kind of bothers me a little bit. You know? Because, like, when I'm hurting, and it goes on a little longer than I was hoping it would go on, it doesn't feel like a little while. It feels like a long while. You know? If you're undergoing chemo, that doesn't feel like a little while. If you're unemployed, the question you're asking is, this, you know, how little is it? No, th- th- this is not a little while. It's, it feels like a long while. When there's relational brokenness in your life, it feels like a long while. The question we're asking is, wow, this really seems like a short amount of time. That's not it. It's how long is this going to go on? There's no little while to our suffering. It just feels like a long while. So how does Peter's math work out to get to a little while? Well, you notice what he does here. He says, it's a little while what? Compared to eternal glory. Well, that seems like an unfair trick, doesn't it? It's like, oh, it's a little while. When you compare your present suffering now to the eternal glory we'll have with Jesus, okay, yeah, it's a little while. 
but it's true. And it's not just true in the, in the, um, in sense of, in the sense of quantity, like quantity of time. Notice what he says. It's also true in the sense of the quality, because he says, in that eternal glory, he himself will confirm, or I'm sorry, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. See, this is that. This is interesting. What Peter does here, he's saying, yes, it's a little while in comparison to how long eternity is. That's some. That's good perspective. But it's also true that we should be encouraged in our present suffering because it won't always be like this. So some of you were here yesterday when Pastor Rob officiated the funeral of, of the family we prayed for a moment ago, Jeff prayed for a moment ago, whose, whose uh, infant son died after just shortly after birth. He had a rare genetic disease. He actually lived a little longer than doctors thought, and they loved on him for as long as they could, and then he went to be with the Lord. And so we're sitting in here, and Pastor Rob is, is encouraging us with the gospel, and one of the things that he encourages us with is this, that the world wasn't always like this, and the world will not always be like this. You see, in moments like that, when, when suffering gets, gets real, like when, when it's time for some, 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 some help and some comfort, what Peter does for us and what Pastor Rob was reminding us of so well was that it's not always going to be this way, that one day Jesus will come back to set all things right, to restore what is broken, to confirm us in Christ, to establish us once and for all as members of God's family, and to set all things right that are wrong, that all sad things might come untrue. Like this is the this is the the heart of hope for the Christian. It's not that suffering is just going to be fleeting. Like we're just going to get through this in a couple of weeks. It's it, it, that may not be the case for you. The real source of hope is that it won't always be like this because we have in the life, death, and resurrection, and ascension and return of Jesus the guarantee that that is true. And so I would suggest to you if our present sufferings aren't worth comparing with our eternal glory, that our present divisions aren't either. This is where I would love for us as a local church, but as a church more broadly, to, to, to begin to see the ways in which we label each other really a waste of time. Like, I'd love for the labels that we give each other, like on this side or that side of this issue or this, or, or, or this camp or this tribe or whatever, th- that we just pretend like those are like those cheap name tags that never stick on your shirt, you know? You spend all that time writing your name, like calligraphy and little hearts and everything. At least that's what I do. And I put it on, and, um, and then after about three minutes, it's on the bottom of your shoe, you know, because it fell off. And, and, you know, eventually you're like, you try to, you keep putting it back up there and there's like hair on it and stuff. You're like, all right, I'm giving up on it. Like I just, my, my prayer for the church in this moment is that we would say, you know what? Those labels, they're not going to last for glory. There's one label that's going to last for glory. That is that we are in Christ. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. That's going to last. All the other ones are going to fall off like a name tag. Let's just leave them there. Because it's exhausting. Being divided is exhausting. And what Peter is also saying is you, you just don't need to go there because our present sufferings are just for a little while. Our present moment is just for a little while when you compare it to the eternal glory, which is not only 
more expansive in terms of time, but more beautiful in terms of experience than we can possibly imagine. We need to remember that in order to fight together, in order to heal together, and finally, in order to work together. Work together. This is not a trick question. How many apostles does it take to write a New Testament letter? Okay. The answer is one. Okay. We believe Peter wrote this letter. It's right there in the title. But then you're like, what about the Holy Spirit? Okay. So we're going to put the Holy Spirit at the top. Holy Spirit inspires the apostle to write these words with the Holy Spirit. That's one. The apostle Peter, that's two. But, you know, Peter adds to the list. Do you know that the book of 1 Peter is also in its own way, don't hear me, don't hear what I'm not saying, but in its own way a group project? That's what Peter tells us. He says, yes, I wrote these words. Yes, the Holy Spirit inspired these words. But verse 12, this is the part that you usually skip. Um, He's sending his final greetings, but notice what he says. There's this man, Silvanus, or Silas. It's also translated Silas, a faithful brother. Uh, this, this letter, he says, is coming to you thanks to Silas, thanks to my friend. He has hand-delivered this letter, we think, from Rome to cities in Asia Minor. So, kids, if you're following along in the back of your Bibles and you've got a map in the back of your Bible, take your finger and start in Rome and then move over to some city. Your parents can show you where Asia Minor is. Right, parents? Asia Minor? You got that? Okay. Uh, and just like show, and there's like, like that, that's a long way to carry a letter. And they weren't taking like, you know, a plane or a train or a car. They're walking. And he says, this letter would not be in your hands if it weren't for my faithful brother. Not only that, he says, um, again, this is a loose translation, but um, hey, the folks in, in Rome want to say Hey. They send their regards. That's the translation we think of verse 13. She who was at Babylon is probably referring to the church in Rome. That was kind of shorthand in the New Testament. I know, kind of a pejorative term to talk about your home city, but that's how they talked about Rome, is Babylon. And the church here is referred to uh, with the feminine pronoun, she who is in Babylon. She says, hello, these are people who were encouraging Peter. And not only that, John Mark, whom he refers to as his son, that would be his his spiritual son or his son in the faith, also says, hello, John Mark's an interesting ad because John Mark traveled with Paul and Barnabas on various missionary journeys, uh, not just probably shortly before this, and you know that didn't exactly turn out well. There was kind of a disagreement, speaking of disagreement between Paul and Barnabas about that, but then we believe that John Mark was the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark, and we believe that Peter was the one who gave him the information about Jesus to write the Gospel of Mark, and here you have John Mark encouraging Peter in the course of, I mean, you see how it's all just interdependent and intertwined? It's Peter saying, I need a team even to do the work of extending the Gospel. And so, brothers and sisters, I would just encourage you and encourage us that the work that we do to extend the gospel from this place, from this very small corner of the world, is work we get to do together. There's all kinds of ways this plays out. Uh, one of the ways it plays out, just a few moments ago, uh, when we were singing together. You know, when we sing together congregationally, you know, what's happening there is I know this might be hard for you to believe, but we're not just picking all your favorite songs so you can come and sing and enjoy or listen and enjoy. Part of the reason we sing together congregationally is because you might be encouraging the person next to you and you don't even know it. I talked, I've had many conversations with people who come to church and are going through such a difficult time that they can't sing or they would start bawling. But actually what 
almost physically held them up in that moment is listening to people around them sing. So your singing is a ministry to one another as you extend the gospel to one another simply by projecting your beautiful voice. All of you have beautiful voices. Use them. Because in singing together, we minister together. We work the gospel into each other's hearts. I'm so encouraged by the fact that we have community groups that get together every so often, once a week or every other week, and part of what they're doing is not just uh, you know, being a group like this and really getting into each other's lives and fighting together and healing together, which is true, but they're also serving together. The community groups in this church alone are serving Afghan refugees who are fleeing the conflict in Afghanistan and meeting their, their physical needs in many different ways. And they're serving in lots of other ways too. I love the fact that it is a thing for our student ministry to serve together in vacation Bible school. And there's a race to sign up, I think, last I checked, for uh, junior hires and high schoolers to serve together our kids so that they might extend the work of the gospel. That's wonderful. I love the fact that we have ministry partners who are in places and doing things that we need to be involved in. That's why we call them ministry partners, not just people we send money to. They're people we know and pray for and work alongside. What's my point? My point is if an apostle needs a team to extend the work of the gospel, I dare say we do too. The work of the church, inside and outside the church, is a group project. It's meant to be a group project. But if we're going to get to the group project, we have to be united about the main things. We have to be on board about what's most important. It's not uniformity, but it's unity. And I think this is really where Peter is ending the, 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 uh, this letter. It's where I'll finish this morning. It's with just a check-in with all of us here at McLean. Now, look, I haven't been here for the last two years so uh, I don't know how things have gone for you over the last two years. I suspect if it's anything like anywhere else, it's been up and down uh, for, for you personally, but also for, this, you know, for us as a congregation. Let's just say a lot of things have happened in two years here. If you're brand new, um, we can tell you more about that, but you know, there's been transitions, there's been COVID, there's been elections, there's been social unrest, and we've had to navigate some of that when we're not even in the same room together. It's not easy. It's not easy. But because I'm the new guy, that means I get to ask questions. I can only do this for so long before I have to start coming up with answers. But like right now, I could just ask a question, right? And, and the question I would ask is, McLean, um, uh, how, how are we doing? How are we emerging after two years? Are we, are we united around the most important things? Do, do we... Do we really get the sense that we're in the fight together? Do we really get the sense that, that this is a safe place to heal together, for us to be vulnerable with each other, to say, um, I share the same wounds you do, we have the same hope in Jesus? Is this, a, is this a place where we really feel energized to work together on what the Lord has put before us? Uh, I know that, that could be, that's challenging. It takes effort to get to that place. I, I know it does. But listen to the way that Peter sends us off as we finish this letter. He tells us in verse 12 that we are called to stand firm in the true grace of God. That's where we plant our feet. So that we might experience this benediction that he sends us off with this morning. Peace 
to all of you who are in Christ. Let me pray. Lord, we ask that this peace that passes all understanding and indeed that crosses all boundaries, that this peace that we only have in Christ would be ours today, that we might do the work you've called us to do together. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.